it's been a really beautiful but very serious walk through Matthew. And we can certainly take it from a lot of different approaches, certainly from an intellectual perspective. We can take it from a cultural perspective, from a very Jewish perspective, or just let it, the text kind of do its way. Uh, and we are now in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. We'll give context here in a moment. So, read along with me if you would, please. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Words Tarasso and Tarasso means to be agitated or terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear, which, by the way, if God has film on some of these moments, I really want to see this one. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought him all that were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Why don't you go to the Lord in prayer with me, please? Father, in this time now that we have set aside to study your word, we've done, we're doing so more than just to be informed, more than just to gather information, but rather today to know you better. And we recognize there can be lots of obstacles, even in this room, even in a beautiful place like this. You know every speck of water, vapor of water in our breath. You know every speck of dust under our shoes. You know us implicitly, and yet... You know today, Lord, what it is that we carry in here like bad baggage. You know those things that confuse us and those things that settle us. You know, Lord, how to speak fluent us. So I pray today for every one of us here. You would do something amazing, revolutionary in this time. Please, Lord, today, speak to each of us right where we need to hear. Captivate us in your word, Lord, and let every moment go perfectly by, we pray. As we commit this time to you, Lord, please let your word go forth profoundly, perfectly, and personally today, please. So, Lord, immerse me, consume me, and pour into me your Holy Spirit till I overflow you. Redeem every second, God, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen would say today as I want any, please don't just believe me. There's always going to be fancy talkers out there with microphones and titles and such. Don't believe anyone just by the, their passion or their confidence, but study this beautiful book and from it then test all things. As we're told, by the way, to test all things. Our context goes back to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, Jesus taught us seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. A parable is a situation laid beside a situation for us to understand the other. The kingdom of heaven, how do we explain this without explaining it from a political perspective and also a personal perspective? And he starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out and sowed seed in soils. Now understand, it's a very transcending parable because no matter where we're at on the planet for the 2,000 years and even prior, everyone kind of gets the idea of farming. 
We get that. You don't have to be from any culture. It doesn't matter whether you're from China or the West, the East or the Middle East. We all get the idea of farming. And we also get the idea that the seed is normally not the variable, but normally the soils are. And he tells us that the seed falls in four different various types of soil. Well, in one case, it's the pavement, the sidewalk, it's the concrete. So it's not going to ever make any form of impact. It's going to bounce off of it. And he tells us the birds of the air come and take it and steal it away before it has any chance to do anything. There was no real reception to the word of God. And and understand, Jesus is speaking to a multitude of people. So as he's speaking to a multitude, he recognizes as he's looking out, there are people with concrete hearts standing in front of him right now. So no matter what he says, no matter it isn't a matter of performance or execution. It won't be a matter of if Jesus were to do smoke and mirrors and just make you know fire come down from heaven, or if he did something that seems so crazy miraculous. In the end of it all, regardless of how Jesus sends it out, a concrete heart has no interest in receiving it. The problem is in our culture, you know, we can smile and nod. We actually know how to have concrete hearts, but really to have much softer faces. So you can talk to someone and they'll go like this, but you know, really, there's no real listening. There's no real reception. If anything, they're gathering the information to fire back at you some form of information. So that is our first type. It says in the second type, it actually falls on rocky soil. So it's, a, it's like a little bit of soil, and if you will, a little bit of concrete as well, a little bit of hard soil. Now, the step farming, the platform farming that they would do in the days, strata farming, well, it was much like steps. And so you would find as you threw, you threw indiscriminately. You threw the seed everywhere, and it did all the things seed does. So in the second case, the problem is it really did sprout out. And it looked really great because... It really didn't have much root because there was a very shallow sense of soil. The response will be very shallow. Now, very shallow soil, by the way, will produce very shallow results, but it also produces very quick results. So if you're the kind that's making the pamphlet or doing the commercial and you really want to set things up, shallow faith, to be honest, looks really great for a moment. But the problem with shallow faith is, is it doesn't, it doesn't stand through or it really can't endure The trials that come, and Jesus tells us, because of the word. And the second case, what we see is, is that as the seed falls, it does sprout up. And it looks like there's some great interest. And we might say, we look at that person and think, wow, what an amazing person. Look at how they're charging for Jesus. Look at how excited they are. But in the end of it all, to be honest, when persecution really comes, they're gone, man. They fry up and they're out of here. And I can see Jesus looking out and and whether he has that insight at that moment as he's teaching, we don't know. But I would imagine it stands to reason with a crowd that size or even a crowd this size. Someone here may be like that. Oh, they want God. And they want all the blessings that God has. But they really don't want God to take such root that all parts and points of them are transformed. And we are very much in fear of that, or I should say of concern of that, because what is viewed as Christianity in the world today, much of it is extremely shallow. There's no depth, and because the depth comes at God's word. The problem with that is we could live off of spiritual experience after spiritual experience, and we can get the shakes and the whoobies, e-baby-be-jeebies, and all the other things, or the whatever we want to call them, and we can say that that was a really great experience with God, but it doesn't deepen the relationship. To deepen the relationship, we need to know him. And Jesus knows there will be those that will be just like that. They will look great on the outside for a period of time. But when push comes to shove, they are silent. When questions come because of the word, even the things they know the word to say, they shrivel. He tells us of a third type. In the third type, the seed falls upon a soil that actually is deeper, but the problem is it's already occupied. It's occupied by weeds, by thorns. And in such a case like this, it won't sprout up as quick as you would say perhaps the the shallow soil, which is actually a good thing. That means it's growing roots first. And some people, by the way, when they say yes to Jesus, some people, you just see this thing, it's like bang and everything's so different. You go, man, I don't even recognize this person. Some people, it's a much slower route. That doesn't mean that one's any less valuable or for that matter, less fruitful in the end. But it's growing roots. And as it's growing roots, the problem is, is that there are other things that are already deeply rooted in it that compete for the same nutrients and water of the soil. 
And there's our problem. And he tells us that those things are the cares and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And you watch people and they come and they they respond and they say yes to Jesus. But in the end of it all, it's a slow suffocation. It's a death by strangulation. And it comes because, well, there are problems in the world that I need to tend to and I need to put God on the back burner. But let me warn you. The moment you start putting something else before God, it's going to shrivel in front of you. You have to put him first. And we know the verses where it talks about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and letting God add those things that are important. But we know that so well now that we know that God will add the things we need, but he won't always necessarily add the things we want. And so if we really want to get the things we want and God doesn't want to give them, we're going to have to really shelf God for a period of time to get it. But you watch the very things you're chasing after, the end that you're seeking, the joy and the peace and the hope, the love that you hope to draw from those things, you can't draw from them the way you thought, because really only God can give those. Then he tells us about a good soil. Interesting, he doesn't say the others were good soil or partly good soil. He says this one's good, though, because it takes the word, receives the word, and ultimately will bear fruit as a result of it. So it'll take the word. Grab a hold of the word, let the word take root, let the word change the soil, and then ultimately it'll bear forth great fruit. And we get that. And he goes through six other parables, and I won't develop those for the sake of time. But then after that, (coughs) excuse me, Matthew, as he can easily be writing thematically, because as a Hebrew writer, he doesn't have to write things chronologically. Luke, by the way, the one Gentile writer of the Gospels, makes clear that he said an orderly account. He says, look, it, if you want to go play by play, those Western thinking guys, well, the book of Luke's going to be the one for you because it goes chronologically. But for a Hebrew writer, we go by theme. That would be the idea here. And, and the reason I say that is then Matthew starts introducing situations, events that took place in Jesus' life, and they actually really flesh out the very things Jesus taught us in that first parable. And that's why I developed it at all. So the first thing that happens after that, Matthew records, is Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. Jesus stands up, he gives the word, he speaks and teaches at the synagogue and the place where he was born, or I should say not born, but the place where he was raised. And, and with that, the people there are offended and they say, well, how does that guy, how, was he, how does he teach like that? How does he even know how to read? That's what they're saying. And where does he get all these miracles from? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is, don't we know his mom? Don't we know his brothers, Jim, Joe, Simon, and, 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 and Judas? Don't we know those guys? Don't we know his sisters? And you realize just like that, they have the concrete soul where Jesus and all that he's teaching. And imagine what it will be like to stand before God and saying, I taught in the flesh in your synagogue and you didn't listen. Because you were too offended by the messenger who happened to be, by the way, my own son. And I see the concrete soul in the people in Nazareth. From there, then he tells us the story of John the Baptist. Backstory on the execution of John the Baptist, which starts setting the emotional tone for our text. In John the Baptist's case, he stands before the last, if you will, the last full intermediate king, and uh, the uh, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, and ultimately there'll be a few of the scattered children that will come from Herod the Great's uh, lineage. That'll end with Agrippa II, by the way, we'll see that in the book of Acts. And he's been confronted because he, in essence, stole his brother's wife, brother Philip, half-brother Philip. And so John the Baptist then tells him, hey, this is not allowed, but you're not allowed to do this. And he's being persecuted for the, because of the word. Interesting, because what the other Gospels will tell us in that situation is that John the Baptist will be actually arrested, and Herod will actually go down there. Antipas will go down there, and he'll go down there to listen to what John the Baptist has to say. And he actually says he really enjoys listening to what he has to say. He's listening, and he's eager to hear it. But he's not eager to let it take root. And ultimately, Herod Antipas has a choice to make. Because his wife now is conned him into a corner through, his da- through her daughter's dancing at his birthday party. And either he's going to stand on the word of God or he's going to kill John the Baptist. Give him the head. Take the head and, and, and give it to uh, his daughter, his dancing daughter-in-law, or stepdaughter. For which, by the way, he will unfortunately side with his wife and daughter. And you see in that the very shallow response, if any, from Herod Antipas. But then from there, then 
the disciples of John the Baptist take the rest of the body that had's been given to mom. Uh, and they take the rest of the body and they take it and they give it a proper burial. And then they go tell Jesus. And this starts setting the emotional tone. Now, please understand, this is, at least from what we have in Scripture, he's the one guy that you see that he's clo- Jesus is closest to until he picks his disciples. He's his cousin. He was a child of promise as well, as we see in the Gospel of Luke. But John the Baptist was even more than that because he was a forerunner to all of the seasons of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist emerges, then Jesus emerges. John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus then goes public with much more of an intensive program, if you will, his teaching and healing. And then after that, John the Baptist is executed, and Jesus sets his face towards the cross, and the cross becomes a very real thing now. So Jesus now, there's a lot hitting Jesus at this moment. And as that's the case, Jesus, we read, gets in a boat and gets away. I mean, it seems as if even Jesus left his disciples. That's kind of the term we get here. And the idea of it is, is Jesus is, I mean, he's dealing with the death of a very decent, close loved one. He's dealing with the reality of the future he has to reconcile. And he just wants to get away and get his head together. Would any of you blame him? And so he gets away isolates himself, but doesn't isolate himself from everyone because he does it to be alone with the Father. And he prays. And as he prays, as he gets alone, might I say it this way, he sought higher ground. We're going to see that in our text. Jesus has this habit when things overwhelm him, and he can be overwhelmed too, mind you, that he goes and he seeks higher ground. He gets up on a mountain somewhere and he starts to pray. Now, where there's no cell phone reception and where there's nobody else tugging on his, if you will, on his pant leg saying, hey, well, I need you for the moment. And when Jesus is done with that time, he emerges again, but this time now for a mass of people who have actually even sought him and found him. But Jesus has had time, to, if you will, to decompress from that information. And we read that Jesus now heals a myriad, a multitude of people. And as he heals a multitude of people... He turns to his disciples and his disciples have appraised the situation and say, you know, there's an awful lot of people here and we're in a deserted place. Deserted because that's where Jesus wanted to be deserted with the father. But now the people have found him. It's not so deserted at the moment. And the disciples are like, why don't you send these guys away? Because, you know, they're hungry and they're going to faint if you don't. And, and I love the fact that if you look at these disciples, the guys they're gonna, that Jesus is going to hand the church over to, that he's going to be, that he's making the world changes. What's fascinating in all this is that the two things they do the most in Scripture recorded, one is argue over who would be greatest, and the second, send people away from Jesus. It's the blind, you know, Bartimaeus, and it's the blind men. The Jesus goes, stop, just get away. And it's the woman, oh, she keeps bothering me, send her away. They keep wanting to send, oh, those kids. They, they're, they're always kind of getting in the way. It's so cool to know that Jesus took guys that were just as thick and daft as us, and he can use them and recruit them to change the world. So none of you are disqualified, me included. But understand what Jesus is doing. He's fleshing out that third soil soul. As now it's the cares and the worries of the world. And I look and I see as these disciples, they're trying to be decent people. And as they're trying to be decent people, they're looking out. And what they see is they see 5,000 men and their families. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And Jesus goes, why don't you give them something to eat? And you can see them going, now that's one of the goofiest things you've ever told us to do. But someone says, well, we do happen to have... Well, five fish and, or two, I'm sorry, five loaves and two fish. But then where in the world is that going to go with this? And I love Jesus' response. Just bring it to me. No matter what your little is, no matter what your problem is, no matter what the situation is, just bring it to me. I'll take care of it. And then Jesus breaks the bread, blesses and breaks, and in doing all of that, 5,000 men and their families are fed. And what we'll read, by the way, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, is that these guys didn't even get how the miracle worked. I mean, Jesus just kept handing them fish and kept handing them loaves. You have to, I mean, which one of us wouldn't be like peeking behind Jesus to figure out what does he have Mary Poppins bag? What exactly is going on here that he's pulling all of this out of? But we read later that they didn't even understand what was going on. That's a crazy thought. And I see our third soil. The Nazareth, Nazareth people who, you know, heard Jesus teach but were so offended because all they could think of were other things. I get it. Herod Antipas, who heard gladly, but in the end of it all, never really let it take root. I get it. 
feeding the 5,000. And by the way, that's a decent... Hey, you don't have to just be caught up in the sinful things of the world to to freak out and stress. In their case, it was feeding 5,000 men and their families. That was a decent act. And yet, that is just another care and the worry of the world unless you let Jesus do it. But now we get to good soil and we get to this text. And I see how it's all playing out perfectly in order. And understand, notice as we develop this now, you can see why there's not many verses. Immediately, we read in verse 22 that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. Now, again, our contrary, our, our, contrary, our, our counter text, so what I mean by that is this, this story is also recounted in Mark 6 and in John 6. In Mark 6, by the way, it tells us where they were going to go, which is to Bethsaida. Now, why is that important? Because John tells us in John 144 that Bethsaida was the city of Andrew and Peter and Philip. So if you think about it, three of the guys, that's a quarter of the 12 disciples. This is home for them. He is sending them home, at least to their homeland, their hometown. But what's interesting is what John tells us in John 6, because we read in John 6:15. hear me on this. Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now, you would think that's what Jesus would want. Here's the problem. If you don't let Jesus be the king he wants to be, he's really not the king at all. He's just a guy that has a lot of, he's like Daddy Warbucks. He's just a guy that has a lot of cool things to give you. But he demands to be a king in a way that you hand him your life and you let him become the architect of your reinvention. And there's our problem. And these people really were very happy about making Jesus king to take on the Roman Empire, to have him lead this martial law where he was going to mean, if Jesus could raise the dead, what would happen if you can get that guy to turn bad? Imagine how many people he could kill with a wave of his hands. But that's not what Jesus came to do. So understand, understand Jesus already is in a vulnerable spot emotionally because of what's going on with John the Baptist, having lost his cousin having to deal with the reality of the cross in front of him, he comes out of that situation to feed 5,000 people and he's like sending them away. And imagine, it isn't just the multitude, it's his disciples who are like, yeah, king, why do you think they're arguing over who would be greatest? Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. Who argues, saying, who's next? Yeah, I'll be next to go to the cross. They're not arguing like that. They see Jesus as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince of Daniel 7, and they know He's come to conquer and to rule and to reign, and that's what they're expecting. And if He's going to rule and reign as Lord, well, who's going to be Vice Lord? Well, that'll be me. And you get this argument that's taking place over these things. And the reason I say that is, is that when the people start saying, King, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they know that that's a proclamation of the king, you can see the disciples getting caught up in the hoopla too, and they're going, yeah, all right, here comes the king, let's bring it on, we're looking for the king, yeah, right? And they're all excited about it, and Jesus looks at his boys and goes, get in the boat and get out of here. And you can see them going, why? And notice it doesn't say that Jesus encouraged them, it says he made them. Did you see that in the text? He made them, which tells us that they weren't actually that excited about going. Now, those of you who are parents, you know what made them looks like. And for all of us, it's normally a little different, but it normally is uncomfortable and unpleasant, especially if there's a crowd in front of you. You're like, guys, get out. Why? This is a good time for us to be here. We can finally see who's going to be the greatest. We finally get to see you become king. And Jesus is like, okay, get out of here. But notice it doesn't say Jesus just sent them away. He said he sent them before him. What does that tell you? That Jesus is going to be there with them on the other side. Don't miss that because that's fundamental for our whole story. Jesus didn't just say, get out of here. Maybe I'll see you again. You guys are all fired. But what he said is, listen, boys, I need you out of this situation. But when we get, don't worry, we'll all be there together on the other side. We'll, co- we'll connect. How are we going to connect? Can you imagine Jesus saying, don't worry, you guys are going to freak out and scream like pansies and I'm going to run into you in the water. It's going to be cool. He doesn't say any of that. Because we don't know that kind of route. But hear me on this. Jesus just says, listen, I need you guys out of this situation. We'll be together on the other side. Get to Bethsaida. No. Those guys are fishermen. At least four of them have fishermen, their partners. So we know they know how to get there. So Jesus sends these guys away so he could do two things. One is he needs to dismiss the crowd now that they've all been fed. But the second thing is he needs more higher ground time. 
Hey, let me just make this clear. There are times where Jesus clearly has to make an important decision and he pulls an all-nighter and he goes and finds higher ground. When he picked his 12, which concluded, by the way, we read, according to John, he already knew one of them. He already knew who his betrayer would be. Imagine having to pick the guy that's going to stab you in the back. Now, do this for a moment. Look around the room. Who would you pick? Who are you going to pick that then you have to treat just like everyone else so that nobody else, nobody else knows? So when, he, when you say, one of you will betray me, everyone doesn't go, well, it's clearly Jesus Iscariot because of the way you've treated him. I mean, I would have thought it was Peter. How about you? I mean, who else did he say, get behind me, Satan, to? Who else did God have to say, shut up, listen to my son? And I realized Jesus never, I mean, he washed Judas' feet. We never saw any anti-favoritism. But Jesus sought higher ground when he had to pick his friends, if you will, including the guy that was going to stab him in the back. Aren't you thankful God doesn't have you do that? Hey, pick someone to stab you in the back. But he does tell us in Scripture to be careful what friends you pick. Might I suggest, get some higher ground. Get alone and get that. Interesting, Jesus, when he had been in Capernaum, if you remember, he had gone to Peter's mother-in-law's house. He healed her. She was sick of a fever. And you could see him going, you're going to need to be healthy because company's coming. Well, who? Well, Luke tells us the entire city showed up after that to be healed. So her house became a hospital. So it was good that she was well. But now the entire town has sought comfort in Christ, healing in Christ. Then Jesus gets and gets higher ground again. And the reason for that, by the way, and it's, it's fundamental, and that's in Mark 1 where we see it in that sense, is that when he comes back down, listen to this, Mark 1.35. In the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with them searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. You see, wouldn't it have been easy with an entire town that had been touched and healed by you to stay there and get comfortable and just rest? I mean, let's face it. If you have a healing ministry and everyone's well, you've got a few days off. So imagine in a moment where comfort is such a natural thing. Hey, this is cool. This is where I'm at with Christ. This is good enough. Jesus still gets alone. And what I get out of that is when he sought higher ground, he could see the needs that God had for him to meet that day. So he comes back down and notice it's like everyone's like, everyone's looking for you. Jesus is like, well, it's time to go. Let's go to the next town. So when Jesus got alone on higher ground there, what we get out of that is that Jesus said, all right, Father, what today? Do I stay or do I go? And what you get is the Father says, nope, we've got more towns to reach today. If you don't do that, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You're going to exhaust yourself because what you're going to do is you're going to think every need in front of you is yours, is yours to meet. Or, once that happens and you get so sick of beating yourself up, then you actually seek to meet no needs. And then you don't get used. And you see people like that, too. I mean, do you, when you see the guy with his hand out, or the big issue seller, or whatever, do you just naturally assume, no way, nothing? Or do you ask, Lord, this one? Because if you ask and the Lord doesn't tell you yes, then you're ready for the next one. And there's something really cool about that. And there are times where the Lord may say, and there's some of us, I look at Mark and I think of others like you uh, and myself, that you may say, take that guy to dinner. Or spend some time get his name. Talk to him a bit. Or he'll say, nope, not that one. But when you get that, you sleep better at night because you know you were available. And if we don't get our quiet time, our higher ground here, we'll either assume none or all. And neither of those are healthy. So Jesus gets this higher ground throughout this. In this case now, Jesus tells them, get into the boat so they could go before him to the other side. And he sent the multitude away. Now, the, may it please you to know I won't be developing every verse like this, but we have to start setting our scene. Now, when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain. Notice, by the way, there's an A mountain, but the mountain. Did you notice that? I kind of get the idea, since it's a definite article, this was a mountain Jesus 
was really familiar. This was like my dad's spot. I sought throughout my years with my daughters to have spots that were unique for them. And there are certain places, you know, you kind of revisit in your memories and they still give you warm feelings. There are certain places for each of my daughters that I just think had a special spot. And the only, what, the only thing that really made it special was who I got to spend it with. And I just really want those spots that I can look back with my daughters and they go, you know, that was my dad's spot. And what's weird is both of my girls are cool in the sense where it's like, I can't go there. That's my sister's spot kind of thing. And I think that's really, really cool. But I think, you know, I'm an evil human being like the rest of us. My, I know my heavenly father is even more so. Not evil, but kind and has that heart. And I think, do I have those spots that are like my dad's spots? I just know that that's my spot. The walk between King's Cross and Camden through the, by the canal. That's one of my spots with my dad. I just love walking and just going, all right, Lord, what am I missing today, Dad? Do you have that? Do you have a spot like that? You can say, that's me and my dad's spot. And if you've never had that with your dad on earth, there's nothing I can do about it, but I can't encourage you with the one who I know loves you implicitly, really wants that. Well, Jesus has that here. He sent in, so this is the mountain. And he went by himself and it says, now at evening came, when evening came, he was alone there. And I, 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 I'm a, I am challenged by this because I realize, am I the kind of person that would leave the mountain before I'm actually alone with him? Well, there's, you know, sometimes if you're anything like me, I come with so, such a crowd of issues and distractions and of like all this ADD flowering from, through my head because of all the things, all of the weeds that are growing in my garden. And then, but there, there gets that point sooner or later. Like, I don't want to leave until I'm sure it's just you and me. Until I know I've had time to just be alone with you. Because sometimes when you try to talk through the other stuff, I don't hear it anyways. And if I do, I don't hear it right. So Jesus is up on a mountain praying. And while he's up on a mountain praying, his boys are having trouble. Verse 24. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, go ahead and show me that, that uh, scene. Give me the big one first, if you will. The big one in the sense of the full scale, uh, where we can see it all. Thank you, Bruno. This is, for, for all intent and purposes, Israel. And I just want to kind of give you at least some... It's easy to note by three bodies of water. This is the dead, this is the med, and down here would be the red. That kind of helps us get some boundaries. The, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, the Med Sea, the Mediterranean. Now, up here in this area is the area of Galilee. Galil means circle, and it is, in that sense, this region. Now, with that, though, can you see this little inlet right here? Now, if we were to take a look at that, that is the Valley of Jezreel. The valley, by the way, that there is a wind tunnel because it runs all the way to the Sea of Galilee on the west into the sea. Now, go ahead and go to the uh, more zoomed-in one. Thank you, Bruno. Now, this area here, then, it comes, flows in right through here. You can kind of see this right here. Can you see that? And then what happens is, because if the wind comes from the Mediterranean and it comes onshore, it can actually run through this and create quick and instant storms, or at least wind, a really strong wind. Now, we're aware of the fact that waves are caused basically by lunar tides and by wind. And in a case like this, even to this day, you can get three, four meter waves on the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's a lot when you think about it. So just do this for the reference for a moment. You're all sitting here. Take a look at where the rings are on your pillars here. Do you see those rings up there? That's basically how bad the waves get on a real windy day. Which one of you wants to be in your cute little boat now? So instantly, at no given promise or, or, or warning, these kind of things can arise. As it's the case, the distance between here and here at our farthest points are somewhere roughly between, well, today, by the way, it's roughly seven, eight miles. So nine at its widest point, from, if you will, from west to east. So if we put that into the, and we get the reference here, by the way, because it'll tell us actually they were roughly between three and four miles by the time they were rowing. So let me kind of give a reference to that. Jesus is up on a mountain, and more than likely he's up on a mountain kind of up here somewhere. As he's up on a mountain somewhere up here, these guys are rowing here and they're caught in the middle of the sea. As they're caught in the middle of this sea, you get the idea they are at least three to four miles away. So let's put that into reference. From where we are standing or sitting right now, if you were to look down and you could actually see Charing Cross Station, that's almost exactly three miles from where we are. 
If we were to take it down all the way to Waterloo Station, Waterloo is actually four miles from where we are right now. So somewhere in between Charing Cross and Waterloo is where these guys are, and Jesus is up on a mountain. One of the nice things about being up on a mountain is you see an awful lot, a lot more, and he actually sees them straining. Now, I challenge you, when all three of the texts here, John 6 and in Mark 6, nowhere is actually, this actually called a storm. Interesting. Although we already know they've already been through one of those. The last time they were in such a trial, if you remember, they were in a situation where they thought they were going to die. Do you remember that Jesus was actually, the word we have, by the way, is resting on the, uh, on the, um, on, on the ship. They were there looking for him. And, of course, ultimately, they turn to him and say, don't you care? We're dying here. Now, don't miss this. Storm one or challenge one and all of this, they are convinced they're going to die. Jesus is easily findable. He's actually the only one not freaking out. He's resting on the boat. And they don't even get to him until they're convinced they're going to die. Don't you care? Is what they're saying to him. Jesus would be like, don't you care? I've been here the whole time. It's waiting to be asked. And in that case, Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind, the waves, and everything's made calm. And our first storm, if you will, if we were taking the class, it seems like we seem to have failed the class. We went and we said, Jesus, stop the storm. Stop the storm, please. I'll never make it through this. Stop the storm. But in this situation, and I'd like to challenge you in this, we don't read that they ever say anywhere they think they're going to die. Actually, to be honest, this isn't one of, of peril. This is one of futility. I mean, they're on the road. Now, I don't know if, how many of you have actually ever really rowed a boat. How many of you here? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. Okay. Now, you kind of know how that is, if that's the case. Even on a, on a, we used to have this sand spit back in California, and it was roughly a half a mile or a mile away. And I'd take my family, and we'd start rowing. We, yeah, this would be kind of fun. And they'd row for a couple of minutes, and then that was it. The oars were done. It's dad's time for this. And it was kind of, you know, you just kind of know that's kind of par for the course. And it's okay until the wind starts hitting. But once the wind starts coming contrary, this is where you're at. We're in a situation now where we're looking at waves roughly that size. The wind is blowing us away from the direction we want to go, which means every time we dig our arms in and we start to row, the best we can get is back where we started. How utterly futile is this? But I get it, because here is the second level. Even though they seem to have failed the first test, God in his mercy actually graduated them to this one. And in this one, maybe this is where you're at today. And I really believe the Lord's brought you here because of this, because where they're at in this sense, if you think about it, is they're just trying to get where Jesus told them to go. (coughs) They're just trying to get to the other side. And they're trying, man. They are trying. It tells us that there was evening when he sent them away. Evening is from 3 to 6 p.m. Follow me on that. 3 to 6 p.m., we'll read that Jesus comes to him in the fourth watch of the night. Once you go, once evening ends at 6 p.m., you start the watches. First watch are in three-hour shifts, 6 to 9, and then 9 to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., and then the fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6. So they got in the boat between 3 and 6 p.m., and Jesus is going to come to them in the morning at 3 to 6 p.m., or 3 to 6 a.m., which means they are at the least amount they've been rowing for nine Hours going nowhere in the middle of the sea. The last time we looked at that last storm, the boat was such a great example of faith and how the boat was the problem. The boat was was being, if you remember, it was being battered and it was being filled by the sea. Notice in our text here, it wasn't that just as the disciples were tossed. But it says that the boat was. Here they are with their faith again. And the word for toss for what's worth is the word basanito. And basanito means to be tortured or tormented. You guys, isn't it time that often tortures our faith the most? We get the promise of God and we know it. And we kind of expect something amazing. And we know God's a God who does really cool, really big, really awesome, really transforming things. And we get into the boat because we're like, yes, I trust you, God. That's going to be awesome. Let's do this thing. Yeah. And we just assume, man, we're going to paddle across that thing. And it's like everything's going to turn into like, you know, the electric parade somewhere in in Disneyland. Everything's going to be awesome. And then somewhere in the middle of it, here we are. The boat's in the middle which means no matter where you go, it's going to be the same distance. 
And you're somewhere in all of this. And no matter how hard you're trying, and you imagine looking, and there's something inside that goes, you know, I must be the worst disciple there is. Because I don't think I've got what it takes. Because no matter where Jesus sends me, I can't seem to do it without him. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that the point? Go fish. Oh, we caught nothing. You know, Jesus calls them fishermen, or the Bible calls them fishermen. I think that's kind, because they've never catch fish in Scripture without Jesus' help. Now, you'd like to think somewhere before that they did, because they... Anyways. But somewhere in all of this, Jesus is like, well, then just do this, and they do it, and it works. Maybe that's where you're at right now. It just seems like you're kind of stuck in the middle. And there's a part of you that thinks, man, maybe I should just cut the sail... Stop fighting this and let the wind and the current just drag me back to where I started. But where was it where you started? Do you remember what that was like back then? When you were helpless and hopeless and rotten and bitter and confused, drunk, wasted, violent, and everything around you was a mess because everything inside of you was. Do you remember that? I do. But you don't think about that when you're in the boat at the moment like this. You don't think about how horrible it was where you came from. Because truth be told, you're just tired of fighting. You're tired of sticking that oar in one more time so that your sinews burn, so that your muscles on, on your back are on fire. You're getting nowhere. Like, I don't get it. I mean, I'm blessed by you. I'm chosen by you. I, I, I'm like one of the twelve. Man, I know I have your favor and your love. What in the heck is going on? And what's worse is, is the only reason I'm in this boat in the first place is because you made me come here. You're the one who made me do this. You're the one who made me get in this boat. I didn't volunteer to get in this boat. You made me come into this boat. Because I didn't see the, the danger I was in if I didn't. And so I'm huffing it, man. You know what it's like. Now, you see a kid, when they're tired, they cry. Everything little is huge. When we get older, that same thing happens. We just learn to do it in grown-up ways, if you will. We just get nasty. You really want to see what a little kid looks like when he's tired and a grown-up? Look at a married couple when they're both exhausted. Don't look too long. The reason I say that, beloved, is I think every one of us understands where these guys are at. But please hear me in this. This is how we graduate and grow up in Christ. We start with this. God, just get this off of me. Get it out of me. God, cut the, kill the storm. Kill the storm right now. Kill it. Kill it, God. Get it. Stop it now. Get it. Remove it, God, please, now. That's where we start. But as we grow, you know what we get in this? God, could you just get me to the other side? Because I don't want to have to go through this storm anymore. Get me to the other side. And as I grow up, I realize... In Christ, I, gr- I realize he really is going to get me to the other side. He promised that I'd be there with him on the other side. That's what he promised. And as he promised that, in a moment like this, the worst thing I could do is stare at the waves and storm, stare at the wind. Because the more I focus on that, the more I'm frustrated I'm going nowhere. So listen, we better bring this around in our last few minutes. It was the fourth watch of the night. Jesus went into the, into the, uh, to them walking in the sea. Now, if I'm trying to row that way, then I'm facing the opposite direction, pulling on my oars or digging normally, in their case, one per side. And if that's the case, if Jesus is coming from where I've left, that means I see him coming closer. Interesting, in the other two texts, by the way, it tells me that Jesus actually would have passed them by in Mark and it tells me in John 6 that he was drawing near the boat. So imagine, they're like just, they're just freaked out and they're just trying everything and they're trying, trying, trying to paddle. I'm just, we're gonna do, we gotta get there. Come on, you guys. Some of you here have never rowed before. Let's get, it. and you start blaming and you can do all that nasty stuff we do when we're tired. And all this is the case. And all of a sudden you hear, bum, 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 you know, and you know, it's like Jesus is like, the last thing you expect is Jesus will probably come walking on the water to us. And what's crazy about this is notice it says that in this, Jesus sees them as if they're from the distance of Charing Cross or Waterloo. And he sees them and he's got to walk that route. 
And it's still blowing, and it's still the waves. And it's, I love the fact that it says Jesus is walking. He's not like meandering. He's got a purpose and a direction. But he's also like not like carefully stepping, oh, that's a good step wave, and that's a bad step. He's just he's like, this is a nonchalant. Well, he's kind of going up. I just kind of get like, oh, that'd be so cool. It'd be like barefoot surfing, you know? And it's like the waves are up, and he's like, whoa, all right, and back. I just, how cool that would be. And as this is the case, it says that the guys look, and they scream like little girls because they think it's a ghost. And to me, I think, wait a minute, a ghost made more sense. In a moment like this where Jesus, who raises the dead, heals the sick, has called all kinds of beautiful things, he's turned water into wine, he certainly has had no problem with anything. But a ghost, which is all kooky, makes more sense than this. No one even thinks, well, that could be Jesus. No, 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 that's just like, oh, it's the Grim Reaper. You know? And they're like, Jesus is like grim. What part of this is grim? You guys are the grim ones. You know? <laughs> and as he starts to walk up to him. Only in this gospel we have this crazy situation. Jesus actually says in verse 27, hey, cheer up. Don't be afraid. Yeah, that's easy to say. Why? Because it's me. You can see them going, what? Right? And then this crazy situation takes place where it's like, what compelled Peter to say this? Which one of you thinks, well, if I were there, I would have said this. Really? We're all freaking out, but maybe it's like Peter's like, I'm so sick of the guys in this boat. I'm so sick of everyone complaining. I'm so sick of the fact we're getting nowhere. Clearly, I'm not getting anywhere on this boat. Jesus, if it's really you, then command me to come out in the water to you. No, don't miss this. Faith is stepping out on the clear command of God. It is not, I'm jumping, catch me. And so many times people are like, I'm going to do this in faith. I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to spend this. I'm going to do this and do this. Go all, act all crazy. And I'm going to do it in faith. And God's like, that's not faith. That's foolishness. That's folly. Real faith says, God, if you command it, I'll do it. But notice it wasn't just command me to meander around. Command me to come to you. Because real faith wants to come to Jesus. Not just walk. It isn't like Peter's like, I'll tell you what, i got more faith than all, y'all. Jesus command me, I'll step out there in the water and I'll show these boys. That's not at all. Jesus is like, you know, you can see Peter going, look at, I just want to be where you are, Jesus. And if that means on the water, then I'll go there. And, and notice this as he steps down out of the boat. Now the boat's still rocking on waves that size, and it's rocking. As it's rocking, who wants to step out of that boat now? And in which one of us do you go, oh, 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 okay. Which one of us does it? How do you do it? And the great part about it is somewhere down the line, Peter starts walking and his focus is on Jesus. And he's walking. Now, after about the first step or two, which one of you doesn't think, yeah, got to happen. And now, sup? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Right? But it tells us then, then Peter, notice it doesn't say that he felt the wind, but he he saw it. And And please hear me. What he saw was irrelevant. It's what he stopped seeing that was. For him to see the wind, he had to stop looking at Jesus. Because remember, he's coming to Jesus. And for him to look at anything else, means that he has to look away. And that's when you start sinking. And I think, this is the good soil? And I'm like, absolutely. The good soil actually winds up... And here's the point. Notice, the issue is not a storm. He doesn't use it as a storm. It's never called a storm. The issue is that there's wind and that there's waves. And if you're going to walk with Jesus, they're going to be underneath your feet. There's the point. Jesus never told us that there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any storms. See, the cool thing on that second level as we start to walk in Christ and mature is we realize, I don't fear the storms because I know where they're going to wind up underneath me if I keep my eyes on Jesus. If you get tired of just being so frustrated going nowhere and you're like, you know what? I'm really looking at the, law, at the wrong thing. So he saw that the wind was boisterous. <clears throat> the word boisterous, by the way, iskoros means to be severe, to be taunting, and he became afraid. Even Eliyahu, Elijah, the man who hears from God and stood before the king, stood against the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. What a mighty man with all this chutzpah. Every time he hears from God, he is a mighty man. But it says when he saw the threats of Jezebel, he fled. And we know from Hebrews 11.1, faith is 
the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. That doesn't mean we walk with our eyes closed. It means we walk with our eyes on Jesus. There's the difference. So immediately, Peter starts to fall. There's argument over how quickly he's falling. Is he starting to go ankles, calves, knees, or does he just start going bloop? We really don't know. The text, to be honest, you could argue either way. But what's clear is he's up enough to pray one of the most sincere prayers in all of Scripture. And notice there's no King James in it. There's no flowery terms. Oh, great and mighty. blah blah. He's just like, Lord, save me. That's all the time he's got. And that's all he gets. And did you notice Jesus rescues and then he reproves? I think that's a really good thing to learn. We'd be quick to rebuke people. But are we quick to rescue too? Jesus offers the hand first. I do appreciate that. And then he says, oh, you little faith, why'd you doubt? I think this is fascinating because if he had little faith, does that mean all the guys in the boat had none? Little faith walked on water. Did you get that? Little faith walked on water. And I think, what? Really? So what happens as a result of it? Here's what it tells us in our other text, by the way. In Mark 6.50, it tells us, or 6.51, that the moment they let him into the boat, the wind ceased. We see that here in our text as well. In John 6, 21, it tells us the moment they willingly received him into the boat, not only did the wind cease, but the boat was on the land where they were going. I love that. It means the moment that you got Jesus in the boat where he belongs, you were where you needed to be. You got there. You'll never get there without him. Which is important because once we get to the other side, what we see in our last three verses is that Jesus now is going to go back to taking care of the multitude who are just diving for the hem of his garment, by the way, which is huge. Because, to be honest, that's the whole point. They just want to hold on to him. Now, all the way back in Exodus, it talks about setting, in 28, the, setting the hem of your garments to be in allegiance with God's word, his heaven commands. And I get that. A woman has already done that, where she's, if you remember, lunged for the hem of his garment. She was healed. But please hear me in this as we go to prayer. God knows your futility. He knows your frustration. He knows the time you've set. And it ain't happening. I mean, which one of us really wants God to come on the fourth watch? I don't know. Three, three oars into the water. I'm ready. Just get me to the other side, Lord. Man, what is it? Marriage? Where you just really can't seem to get the spouse to love you the way you want. A job that you really just can't seem to find. The house you just expect that you wish, but it didn't. Not yet. The thing you set your hands to, and you were just sure this thing was going to erupt on you, and you're like, I'm still, and my hands are still calloused, and my arms are still sore. And I thought by now, but I remind you for four of these fishermen, it's home. And he knows how to get you home. But you'll never get there by yourself in the boat. That's faith in you. But you're going to have to step out. You know, some will tell you, and you've probably heard this, hey, don't go overboard with this Jesus thing. I'd say, listen, go overboard with me. Let's go walk on water. Let's watch what he does. He never stopped teaching his boys. But the Bible makes clear that the greatest act that God ever did was walking to the cross. You really think that the storm was rough? You really think that this futility is rough? It is. It's nothing like where my Lord says, I'm going to get you to the other side and let me show you. Because the way to get there first is for me to pay for your price on the cross. Taking all your filth and, and grime and sins and mine too. Mine isn't Pastor Tony, not Jesus. He had none. To put it upon him. And to die there. Because as he died there, it paid our fare to get across. And as he rose from the dead, just as scripture told us, he shows us what the other side looks like. And the only thing left is to let him in your boat. But if you do, you don't let him in as a rower. You let him in as the captain. 
And that's the problem. Who wouldn't say, Jesus, I think you would be a great rower. But if we're really going to... Here's the thing. The moment Jesus gets in the boat, we're on the other side. And maybe today you've been exhausted and you're really trying. I'm here to say, please do not grow weary and well-doing. God's got a season where you're going to reap, and I know it. But man, you've got to trust Him. Do not cut cord and run. Please, for your own sake. Because somewhere in all of this, He's going to get you to the other side. But if you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the only thing left is to let Him in your boat. That's the choice you need to make today. He died on the cross for you, rose again, and the only thing left is to say yes. And that's the prayer we pray right now. If you have said yes to him today, man, let's hand him all those things we're so tired of rowing for. See, Lord, get me to the other side in your time. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for what you've done in it. I thank you for the way that you lead us and guide us. And I recognize, Lord, that there are raw backs here. There are weakened arms and tired legs. We know the spray of the sea. We know what it feels like to be jostled by the wind. But even more so here, we know what it's like to to have our faith mocked and tortured by these challenges. And sometimes we really want an explanation, but we don't even think about how crazy that would be for, for us to try to get from you how one event can send ripples by the billions of events that follow. And we somehow think that you do something for a single reason. I want to know why I didn't get that. Why this thing? Why am I still in this situation? And yet we don't see the so many reasons why you are doing everything. And we don't trust that you are good and brilliant at the same time. And if we did, we could say somehow I don't get it. I'm too, I'm too daft to get it. But you're so brilliant. Your ways are so much higher than mine. They're not just that I don't get them and they're going to be smarter and more brilliant, but they're also so much better for me than my own. So I pray for every Christian here, myself included, that is in any way just depleted because of the frustration of life that's been handed them at the moment and they just don't see how they're going to get to the other side. But today you've reminded them, Jesus, you are the you are the way, the truth and the life. Get us to the other side. But here in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, it's as simple as a yes. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. And So I want to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. Hey, look, you may think this is crazy. I can't believe I even have this choice before me or even crazier that you want to say yes. But today, as the Lord would love to take from you all of the burdens of this world, your regret, your filth, your shame, your guilt, and exchange it for an adopted heart, Exchange it for love, peace, belonging. And I know His Holy Spirit can confirm that and will right now in your heart if you let Him. Please don't be like the first soil type where you just kind of contemplate the information but don't let it take any root. Receive what God has for you today. Don't be just one that says, well, uh, this far and only this far and let it be some form of shallow response. But today, let God's word take root in you. And let him pull from you those things that are already established in your heart that you even want gone, that are traps right now. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am a sinner. I know it just like every other human being. 
But you in your righteous judgment chose to take all of my crimes of my heart and place the punishment upon your only begotten Son. And you would pay for that. And in doing so, when he went to the cross and to the grave, my price was paid in full. So why would I want to pay it myself? And just like Scripture promised on the third day, he rose again to offer me new life. And to that new life I say, yes, have me now, I'm yours. I belong to you. So here I am, God. Please have me. This is real and this is what you want. And I say, yes, in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers now. I pray as we sing now the last couple few songs for the evening, Lord, let it be that you would take this time and reinstill hope in a God that makes no mistakes. In Jesus' name, amen.